methods that our comrades have at hand are too primitive. These are the words of Xi Jinping, China's leader. None of these weapons is any answer for their big machete blades, axe heads, and cold steel weapons. These lines come right from China's Communist Party documents, secret memos and speeches that were recently leaked. We must be as harsh as them and show absolutely no mercy. Xi Jinping used this language to order his people to round up an estimated million people in Western China, members of the Muslim Uyghur minority. He thinks they're terrorists, so he's locking them up in secret re-education camps. People who are detained have no contact with their families, and people outside can't reach their relatives once they're inside these camps. It's draconian, it's chilling. And when these words became public in November 2019, I thought Xi Jinping is really doubling down on the Communist Party as the most ruthless tool possible. I'm Jane Perlez. Now Xi Jinping's authoritarian rule is crystal clear. Crystal clear. But that wasn't the case at all when I started covering China for the New York Times seven years ago. One day, Jill Abramson, the executive editor, called up and said, Well, listen, why don't you go to China? You've been State Department correspondent. You've been in Southeast Asia. You know how foreign policy works. Go and cover their foreign policy. I said, great, okay, you're on. So I went to Washington to prepare for my assignment in China. This was the end of 2011, beginning of 2012, and it coincided with the coming to power of Xi, the current leader. I was there on February 14, Valentine's Day 2012, when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State, and she threw a big formal lunch for Xi Jinping. He was still vice president, but everybody knew he was going to be the leader. It's an honor to welcome all of you to the State Department uh, this afternoon. Uh, it's always so she was on the stage, and Joe Biden, Biden was on the stage because he was equivalent to Xi Jinping. To that was the two vice presidents. And Xi Jinping was standing there, and Henry Kissinger was in the front, and Yang Jiechi, former Chinese foreign minister, and the State Department had been very kind and given me a seat right in the front. Xi Jinping, speaking through an interpreter, made a toast. To the remarkable development of China-U.S. relations in the past 40 years, and to an even better tomorrow of China-U.S. relations. Cheers. I always remember the reception before the lunch. You know, you stand around and talk to each other before you go to your tables, and everybody was so upbeat. And I don't think it was just Valentine's Day. I think they really thought this was a leader who the United States could deal with. After that really friendly State Department lunch, Xi Jinping flew off to Iowa, where he'd spent time on an agricultural exchange as a young party official in 1985. And then he went to Los Angeles, where he attended a Lakers game. It was really skillful stagecraft designed to appeal to Americans who knew nothing about him. Everywhere he went, he was seen as the smiling face of a newly confident China. As we now know, U.S. diplomats and experts, and even intelligence officials, got it wrong. They misjudged Xi Jinping. 
They thought he would be a reformer. Instead, he turned out to be the most authoritarian Chinese leader since Mao Zedong. This is the story of Xi Jinping and the leader he became. Well, his early life was filled with ups and downs. This is Min Xin Pei. I turned to him to find out more about Xi Jinping's early life. Pei is a professor at Claremont McKenna College who came to the U.S. from China in the 1980s. He told me Xi was born in 1953 and grew up in and around Zhongnanhai, the legendary compound in Beijing where China's leaders live. It was a nice life with chefs, bodyguards, chauffeuring cars, nutritious food, healthcare, and above all, specialized schools set up just to educate the children of the Communist Party elites. Xi Jinping's father was a famous general and a high official under Mao. And because of that, Xi was known as one of the princelings. They were the red nobility, the sons of the original revolutionary leaders. When he was born, his father was still in power, uh, one of the really key leaders in the Chinese government at that time. But when he was 9, 10, his father fell out of favor. His father was suddenly demoted, purged from the party, and sent off to do manual labor in the countryside. It was quite a come down for such a powerful man, and shocking to his young son, Xi Jinping. He saw firsthand what the loss of power would mean in that system. That must have left a very deep impression on him. Not long after his father was sent off to exile, Xi Jinping was sent to the countryside as well. The Cultural Revolution had just started. That's when Mao Zedong launched a campaign that turned the country upside down. A decade-long period of chaos. At the political level, it was a purge. Then at the societal level, it was just a combination of madness, ideological madness, uh, extremism, but complete insanity in the sense that Common sense went out the window. Professors were not allowed to teach. Colleges were shut down. Order, law and order broke down. The country descended into absolute chaos. Different factions fought each other with weapons. Military units got involved. Millions of people died. Xi Jinping was just a teenager, and he had to leave his friends in Beijing. His school was dismantled, and he had to dig fields in the barren northwest of China. After some months, he couldn't take it. He, he came home. He essentially ran away from uh, the boondocks. And uh, then he was sent back. I was growing up in Australia when all this was happening. In fact, I first traveled to China as a university student in 1967. A very early trip for any foreigner after the communists won power. 57 of us got on board a ship, a cargo ship. We went steerage class to Japan, spent about a week in Japan. Then we came down to Hong Kong and went into China, and we found ourselves in the middle of the Cultural Revolution. Our train passed many of these tiny bands of long marches. Their ages range from 12 to 30. They are often away from their hometowns for months on end, marching by day, staying at night in the thousands of Red Guard hostels. This is footage of a film we made about our trip. It feels naive now. 
and a bit surreal looking back at that harsh revolutionary landscape. I remember the rural poverty, the bleak cities, bicycles if you're lucky as the only form of transportation. In China, Mao is everywhere, seemingly in every street and on every building. He seems impregnable. There was the intense political indoctrination. No one could escape the hour-long study sessions on Mao Zedong or the megaphone blaring party propaganda all the time. That visit planted the seeds of a lifelong fascination with China. This was our farewell to Red China by the Customs Department choir after they had checked our luggage. Everywhere we went, people put on a good show for us. But I can only imagine how these years of exile affected the young Xi Jinping when he was banished from a life of privilege. Yuan Sun of the Stimson Center think tank in Washington thinks it probably left an indelible mark. I think for a Chinese, and I'm speaking as a Chinese, the most direct lesson is that political struggle in China is ruthless. And you don't want to lose. Because when you lose, you could lose everything. Eventually, the Cultural Revolution waned. And in the mid-1970s, Xi Jinping returned to Beijing to study. His father was welcomed back into elite party circles and became a champion of economic reform. His father was really a past-blazing reformer. So much so, the older Xi was one of the first Chinese officials to visit the United States. He came in 1980, just one year after diplomatic relations were established between the two countries. He was hosted by the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. I wanted to know more. I went to see the group's president, Stephen Orlands, at their headquarters in New York. Hi. How are you, Steve? So this is the hallway outside your office, and yes. prominent on the wall here. So, so these are pictures of the history of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. So on your right, you have our hosting of the Chinese ping-pong team. You have, our, you have President Carter, where we've you know, introduced some Chinese leaders to him. And then in 1980, you have a picture of Xi Jinping's father, Xi Zhongshun, who was governor of Guangdong province at the time. It's a striking image. Xi Jong-sun has this big smile on his face, and he's standing next to Tom Bradley, the mayor of Los Angeles. Do you know where they had just been? Well, they're in L.A. They had been to look at Hollywood, or they had been to look at... To Disney. Oh, to Disney. Yes, we have a wonderful picture of Xi Jong-sun shaking the hand of Mickey Mouse. I wonder what he did with that photograph. Xi's father and other Chinese officials spent several weeks in the U.S. Steve Orland says the purpose was simply to find out more about the American system and how it works. To see what the U.S. was doing and what China could do to emulate the United States to lift, at that point, 800 million out of poverty. And his desire to learn what was going on, by all accounts, was enormous. He was truly committed to reform. Xi Jinping's father went on to implement significant economic reforms back home in China. As the younger Xi rose to power in the years after that, China watchers expected him to follow in his father's footsteps, 
someone open to change and new ideas, son like father. Over the next couple of decades, Xi Jinping began his steady climb through the party ranks. He married a famous singer, Peng Liuan. She was such a star that Xi Jinping was sometimes known as the husband of Peng Liuan. The historian Chen Zhen remembers meeting Xi during this period. It was 1999, and Xi was acting governor of Fujian province by then. He was handsome, he was very friendly, smiling. And when we sat down, and he straightforwardly asked, what can we, I do for you? Chen Jian and his colleagues told Si they wanted to do research in the provincial archive. I remember he almost had the kind of, you know, relief because he did not know what we went there for uh, something maybe very difficult. When he learned that we just would like to get access to archival documents, and he said, okay, he called his secretary to ask him in front of us to call uh, the archival director. And just like that, Xi Jinping arranged access to the records Chen Jian and his colleagues were searching for. And uh, what followed was just an amazing you know, experience in doing research in a Chinese you know, provincial archive. The whole encounter left Chen Jian with a positive impression of the future Chinese leader. He spoke clearly, spoke softly, and his Putonghua, his Mandarin, from my perspective as a Shanghai boy, it was amazing, it was attractive, it was a kind of power of attraction. And he treated me with a kind of respect. There was no hint then of the authoritarian Xi Jinping would become. In fact, the opposite. He listened very, very carefully, you know. It's very amiable. The exchange was very, very smooth. We stayed there for about one hour, and then he treated us a little lunch, and then we left. Xi's experience as a governor of two coastal provinces paved the way for his rise to the top of the Communist Party. He began to get a reputation of being a market-oriented reformer. And also someone other party officials saw as flexible, non-threatening, and competent. Here's Yun Sun again. I remember the Chinese saying was that he was very obedient, playing a very obedient role of the successor. By 2007, he'd been appointed a member of the Politburo Standing Committee, the top of the Communist Party hierarchy. Harvard China scholar Tony Sage remembers meeting him on a very formal occasion in the Great Hall of the People. He was very sturdy. He shook everybody's hand as they came in. And then we sat down to the normal formal sitting in chairs with antimacassars that prevent the possibility of any genuine dialogue. This was a shift from the warmth Chen Jian, the historian, had experienced in Fujian years earlier. Si had begun to put on a mask. We went into a very ritualized set of conversations between himself and uh, Harvard University President Drew Faust. It was remarkably different from the previous meeting that we'd had, for example, with uh, Jiang Zemin, uh, when he sat very informally, really enjoyed the banter and back and forth of discussion. In contrast, Xi Jinping behaved like a man unwilling to risk a false move. He was now vice president and the leader in waiting. He spent the next four years traveling the world, including to that Valentine's Day lunch at the State Department. Everything was set for him to assume power. And then, in September 2012, he vanished.
the significance of his rise was really driven home by his absence. The American political scientist Mira Rapp Hooper was just starting her career when Xi Jinping disappeared. It fascinated her. No one to this day knows what happened, but it was a huge mystery. Beijing loves rumors. One version was that he fell in a swimming pool. It seemed to me at the time that the most plausible answer was that he was ill in some form. But there were also more wild version that attributed it to like a political plot, a political coup, assassination attempt. Perhaps there was a light wounding which sort of kept him out of the public eye. But of course, one of the big questions that was raised by that explanation was why he not only canceled a meeting with then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, but why he could not even speak on the phone to her. And that was something uh, that never seemed quite to resolve in my mind. And then, two weeks after he disappeared from view, Xi Jinping reemerged, apparently unscathed. He was back. Shortly after, in November 2012, he was installed as General Secretary of the Communist Party. At his first press conference, I remember he came on stage with other members of the Standing Committee. I'm sorry I'm late, he said. And everybody thought, wow, he's apologizing. This isn't how the party brass usually behave. This guy's different. But that was one of the last spontaneous touches we saw from him. After that, he lost no time getting to work. What struck me in that very early period was not only the perception of his strength, but the speed with which he appeared to be moving. This is Mira Rapp Hooper again with the Council on Foreign Relations in New York. We saw that the anti-corruption campaign, which he had previously signaled as a key part of his agenda, started to be implemented within weeks of his ascension, that there was no delay in his consolidation of power and his implementation of his stated goals. Inside China, the perception was similar, according to Tony Sage. Friends of mine in China were really taken aback by the speed with which he moved to consolidate power. His aggressive control over dialogue and discourse surprised people. Uh, His strong reassertion of state control over the economy also took people by surprise. I wanted to know more about this period, so I went to see Taylor Fravel, a professor at MIT who follows China closely. Hi. Hi. How are you? Good. Are you expecting us? Yeah. This is amazing. Look at all these books. Chinese books. I'm impressed. (laughs) My personal library. When I was in grad school, I would bring a separate roll-on suitcase just for books. And it was so heavy, I didn't want to check it because they would charge you overweight fees. (laughs) Fravel says there was a huge change in C's behavior at the end of 2012. A leader whom we may have thought from early 2012 was going to be a relatively sort of approachable and consensus builder, so to speak, uh, did not necessarily act that way afterwards. Fravel guesses that something dramatic went down behind the scenes during that mysterious period when Xi disappeared. Something that made Xi feel that his rule over the Communist Party was fragile. We do know around this time there were big rumblings at the top of the party, and Xi eventually decapitated his main opponent, the flamboyant Bo Lai, who ended up in prison. If Fravel's right, That explains why C started a massive roundup of other party officials and businessmen, 
all under the guise of an anti-corruption campaign. C's crackdown proved popular with ordinary people, and he was good at relating to them. His first year in office, he stopped by a dumpling shop in Beijing for a bite to eat. In this video, Xi Jinping stands patiently in line. Customers are milling around him, holding up their phones to capture the moment. He looks completely at ease in the crowd. This was Xi the populist. That first year in office, Xi traveled to the United States and had a no-tie, shirt-sleeve meeting with President Obama at the Sunnylands Estate in California. The importance of this uh, relationship in some ways is reflected with uh, the somewhat unusual setting. Uh, this is a wonderful place, a place of sunshine, and it's very close to the Pacific Ocean, and on the other side of the ocean is China. They were still getting to know each other, and the optics were warm and open. The two leaders sipped martinis served by a butler in the cocktail hour. Someone who was there told me Obama asked Si what he would have, and Si said apparently, I'll have whatever you're having, and looked very surprised when he was handed a giant martini. But it wasn't all sunny at that meeting, and it wasn't long before Xi Jinping's willingness to challenge the United States was on full display. At the time, I don't think I really thought, well, is this guy going to be good or bad? I just thought, he's a new face, and he's showing the power of China, which is quite considerable. In that first year, he went to Kazakhstan, which is in Central Asia. It's a neighboring state to China. And I thought, oh, I'll just go along and see what happens. Ladies and gentlemen, dear friends. What happened was Xi's historic speech announcing China's Belt and Road Initiative. To forge closer economic ties, deepen cooperation, and expand development space in the Eurasian region, we should take an innovative approach and jointly build an economic belt along the Silk Road. Xi Jinping was saying, I'm the new leader of China, and we are going to build this infrastructure across Central Asia into Europe, and we're going to recreate the old Silk Road. Parts of the speech were pretty boring, but some of it was quite evocative. He said things like, I can smell the scent of the camels and hear the songs of the camel bells as I speak. I can see the smoke of the campfires. The Belt and Road Project developed into this big overseas program, which is challenging the United States in most corners of the world. It was the first sign that this was not going to be a Chinese leader, content with concentrating only on domestic issues. There were other signs of that, too. One of the first things he did as leader was visit Navy sailors in Hainan who work in the South China Sea, shouting greetings from atop a moving vehicle. Comrades, you are working hard, he booms. We serve the people, they shout back. Then he rattled everyone, and he did something totally unprecedented. He started building artificial islands in the South China Sea that could be used as military bases. In this propaganda video, you hear the ballad of a soldier stationed on an island in the South China Sea. 
The song plays over images of beaches and military ships plowing through the turquoise waters and soldiers on patrol visiting Chinese territorial markers. At the end, the sun sets over an island airstrip. Taylor Freyvold, the expert at MIT, says the island building was all part of a newly assertive nationalism on the part of the Chinese leader, and it came hand-in-hand with the build-up of the military. Clearly, he likes to, you know, flaunt China's capability. I mean, he's had three military parades in seven years, which is quite remarkable. Freyvold's specialty is the Chinese military, and he found a bunch of internal speeches Xi Jinping made to the troops when he first became party leader. It's striking, at least, to see how early on he was worried about China's position in the world and the various kinds of threats and challenges he saw. One big one was the Arab Spring. Those revolutions were breaking out right as Xi was coming to power. And, of course, from his point of view, the West uh, has been the enabler or the facilitator of these revolutions, right? And so it makes him view the West as uh, more hostile or at least as quite dangerous. And I think in the United States, at least, we've underestimated perhaps the degree to which that you know, our system right, has been viewed as a threat by China's communist leader. With that threat in mind, perhaps, Xi Jinping has put security and stability over everything else. His biggest fear continues to be disarray in the party. He built up and reorganized the military. He censored online speech and cracked down on human rights, including, as we now know, ordering the detention of hundreds of thousands of Uyghur Muslims in the name of fighting terrorism. He also created volumes of Communist Party propaganda and put them in his own name. This is Xi Jinping thought, and it's enshrined in the Constitution and everyone is compelled to learn it. These are classic strongman tactics, says Min Xinpei. And you can say, well, this is really a throwback to the Maoist era, to the Stalinist era. That is, you have one dominant, unassailable political leader at the top. Pei says it's like going back decades to the Cultural Revolution. Instead of the little red book, we have this little red app. Then last year, Xi Jinping made a move that startled even the most sympathetic observers. He abolished the party's traditional term limits, effectively becoming emperor of everything forever. I can remember when this was announced. It was kind of leaked accidentally in English on Twitter by one of the state-run media outlets. And oh my God, it went around like wildfire. The Constitution had been changed from a two-term limit for the president to no limits whatsoever. So about 20 minutes after this announcement, I called someone at one of the universities in Beijing who was quite pro Xi Jinping, very proud of Xi having made a splash on the world stage. And I said to this person, what about this new announcement? And he was a quasi-friend. I mean, we talked quite a bit. And there was just silence at the other end of the phone. And he said, I don't know what to tell you, Jane. This is not good. And then he hung up.
I often think about that moment. It was really striking. It was clear that Xi Jinping had finally gone too far for some people. His control had never been more acutely felt. It was getting harder and harder to report in China. People didn't want to talk. They actually didn't want to talk with each other. Everything was kept within the family. The fear was palpable. Party officials escorted me away from places that were totally unimportant, but they still didn't want me to see them. I wrapped up my assignment a year later and returned to the U.S. I came to Harvard for a fellowship at the Shorenstein Center, where I've spent my time reflecting on Xi Jinping and talking to people who have studied him closely, trying to figure out why Xi felt he had to act this way, why he had to impose this oppressive atmosphere on an economically successful, ever-richer China. One person I checked in with was my colleague Nick Kristof, one of my predecessors as Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. He had written a glowing column about Xi in 2013. I asked him to read from it. Here is my prediction about China. The new paramount leader, Xi Jinping, will spearhead a resurgence of economic reform and probably some political easing as well. Mao's body will be hauled out of Tiananmen Square on his watch, and Liu Xiaobo, the Nobel Peace Prize winning writer, will be released from prison. So, Nick, I'm sure you can be quite self-deprecating about this. (laughs) One doesn't need to be self-deprecating about that. (laughs) I mean, it would be hard to imagine a prediction that is more wrong than that one. So why do you think you got it wrong? So we were all trying desperately to figure out what direction Xi Jinping was going to take the country. And perhaps partly because we've been so frustrated by his predecessor. I mean, the country just seemed paralyzed. Everybody was ready for uh, some forward movement. And there were some really promising signals about uh, Xi Jinping, and I think we grasped with them and read too much into them. This has happened before, says James Mann, author of The China Fantasy and other books about China. Well, there have been essentially five uh, leaders of China. The United States tends to get them wrong in the early stages as they're coming to power by projecting too many hopes and uh, interests of the United States onto their analysis of who these leaders are. Mann says there's no mistaking what kind of a leader Xi Jinping is now that we've seen him in action. He represents a concerted, advanced effort to not just reimpose, but entrench an advanced authoritarian system with full use of not just the police, but high tech, all kinds of new surveillance, facial recognition. I wanted to understand what lay behind that chilling vision. So I wanted to find someone who had spent real time with Xi Jinping. As luck would have it, Former Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd was visiting Harvard, and he kindly agreed to talk to me. Prime Minister Rudd. G'day. G'day. Rudd speaks Mandarin, and he's met Xi Jinping many times. He hosted him one winter evening at the Lodge, Australia's equivalent of the White House. And uh, it was bloody cold, and so um, I kept stoking the fire. And we chatted, I think, for at least... um, one and a half, two hours, about all manner of subjects, um, for which there is no official Australian record because the only Australian official attending was our ambassador who didn't speak a word of Chinese. He certainly struck me then as uh, deeply self-assured, 
deeply confident in uh, his answers to any question I posed. So one of the things that we're trying to do in this podcast is to wrestle with the following. People in Washington, perhaps naively, thought he was a reformer. You were at that State Department lunch, uh, Valentine's Day 2012, when everybody was so optimistic. Um, But clearly this has not turned out to be true. Does it matter that the US misjudged him? To be fair to the Americans and other interlocutors, many of us got that wrong. I remember saying to President Obama, having met the guy, Xi Jinping, many times, uh, Barack, I think you can do business with this guy. Um, And I meant it. Rudd said there's a reason people didn't understand Xi. To survive in Chinese domestic politics requires wearing a mask for a very long time. So therefore, like the rest of the Chinese senior political class, many of these folks' actual substantive views are not known by very many people beyond their narrow, most immediate set of friends. And it's only when you're finally, as it were, put into the position of executive responsibility that you begin to see uh, what makes the man. How would you describe his leadership today? What are the characteristics? Absolute uh, Machiavellianism in terms of his capacity to identify threats to his power within the system and to deal with them. Anyone who underestimates that does not understand the Leninist uh, in Xi Jinping. To survive in a Leninist system requires those skills. Rudd and I spoke for quite a while. He's head of the Asia Society Policy Institute in New York now. He had just spoken with Xi Jinping the week before in Beijing. He said one last thing about Xi that really stuck with me. He's a party man. And so the standard uh, phrase in Chinese internal politics is Hong Er Dai, or second generation red. Literally, the second generation of first generation revolutionary leaders whose view was, hey, we actually paid in blood for this revolution. We're not about to give up the party's future. And so when he looks at the party's future, uh, he and those around him are often heard to say, Dang zai woman which is the party is in our blood. What Rudd said reminded me of something Yun Sun said about the lesson Xi Jinping learned from the Cultural Revolution, that he had to win at all costs. His uh, childhood experience, especially the experience of falling from the high cloud down to not only earth but to the dust, contributed to that personality that people in China do regard him as having a vindictive and ruthless personality. He also has a sense of his own destiny, and that is wrapped up in China's global ambitions. I want you to hear Xi's voice one more time. In May, when trade talks broke down between China and the United States, Xi Jinping purposely went out of his way the next day and traveled a long way to Jiangxi province. He deliberately chose one of the most hallowed places in Chinese Communist Party history to deliver a singular and important message. Now it's a new long march, Xi said. We need to start all over again. Everybody knew Xi was referring to a long march against the United States. Relations between the United States and China are now at their lowest point since diplomatic relations were established in 1979. Xi has made clear that he takes this rivalry with the United States as a paramount challenge and that he intends China to win. 
that China will be working to be self-sufficient, to be separate, and to be number one in the world. Just before I left China, a senior official who I was friendly with invited me for a farewell lunch. I thought it would be an hour of pleasant memories, family, future, and so on. Instead, I received a four-hour lecture about the villainy of the United States. I realized that I was leaving a different country to the one I had come to at the start of my assignment. I had witnessed a major episode in the transformation of China, pushed along at headlong speed by one man, Xi Jinping. I'm Jane Perlez. Thanks to everyone who helped me make this podcast during my time at Harvard. On the Trail of Xi Jinping was produced and edited by Jeb Sharp. Our assistant producer was Helen Zhang. Our researcher was Luz Ding. Sound design by Tina Toby Mack. Special thanks to the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics and Public Policy at Harvard Kennedy School, including Nancy Gibbs, Tom Patterson and Liz Schwartz. Thanks also to Harvard's Ash Center, the Fairbanks Center and the Belfast Center for Science and International Affairs for all your support.